0: Hello everyone, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode and every episode that you listen to, loving the weather, just that little bit more. Hi, I'm meteorologist Gemma. Hello, and I'm meteorologist and weather presenter Ashling. We're
1: so delighted you have joined us for yet another podcast. But we've we've got a bit of fandom going on here because we have a very special guest tonight. It's Helen Roberts from the Met Office, probably one of the most experienced, most diverse meteorologists I know, and is constantly dipping her hand into new and wonderful things. She's worked as a forecaster for the Met Office as well as a BBC weather presenter on Spotlight Southwest England. Helen is the Met Office's first socio meteorologist. Working at an intersection of meteorology and social science, and has recently completed a master's in psychology. I'm not even going to ask you how many years you've actually been studying because I know you must have a master's in Met. You've got your level five QCF in meteorology and meteorological presentation, (laughs) and now you have a master's in psychology. Helen, is there anything that you don't know? (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> plenty, plenty but thank you so much for that wonderful introduction that's that's really nice and um yeah my career has flashed before me my, my 20-year career I'm, I'm happy to admit 20 years ago almost to the day that I joined the Met Office as a trainee forecaster
1: oh amazing what date did you join
2: it was the third of the third of the third so very Hi. easy to remember yeah oh, n-
1: not quite a palindrome but something resembling something or other amazing oh my god so just a couple of days past your 20th anniversary absolutely oh how lucky us getting getting all of that experience on the podcast amazing (laughs) so without further ado let us start where we always do which is Helen where did your first spark of joy come from that you thought "Mm, let me give that better stuff a go
2: yeah I think um Probably like many people, there were a few moments that stick out in my mind. Certainly as a child, I was fascinated by weather and particularly thunderstorms. And um, I know that my our, our neighbours would tell my parents that they'd seen me staring out of my bedroom window way past my bedtime as a youngster uh gazing out at thunderstorms or sunsets or any kind of weather to be honest i also remember as a specific incident the the great storm the 1987 storm um i was i was seven years old at the time and i remember it being exciting more than scary. I remember the journey to school that morning after the night before seeing all the debris and the branches and the trees and the leaves. And yeah, I think that that was another moment. Um, So there's been a few, but there's always been this fascination with what I call big science. So space, astronomy, geology,
1: geography, yeah, all of it. So, which brings me to my next question. So we've had a number of different guests with expertise. I've never, ever met anybody with yours. Tell us about this new emerging field of meteorology, which is probably for you. It's actually not really that new, but perhaps newly named role.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Socio-Meteorology, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, is, is this intersection of the social and behavioural sciences and the more traditional natural sciences that we that we associate with weather and climate. And it's a, a it is an emerging area, although I have to say, um others are much more advanced in this field than we are in the UK. For example, in the US, they've been working across these disciplines for well over a decade now. So they certainly gave me some inspiration. Um, and uh, in Australia, um, and and many other countries across Europe as well. So um, it's not something that, that I or we invented. Um, but I did spot a gap in the market, if you like, a, a bit of a niche at the Met Office that hadn't really been explored. And I could see that we were really excelling in the in the physical sciences, but really not embedding and incorporating the social sciences um, in, in the best and most, most efficient way.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating because I think probably the one thing we've learned from, well, I've personally learned from doing this podcast is... You know of all the scientists we've talked to there's such a big emphasis now on communication of their science and as we know the climate is changing there's certainly a lot more extreme weather in the UK so it makes complete sense doesn't it what you're what you're actually doing tell us a bit more about what that involves how has that changed your traditional you know forecasting what is different about your day now
2: yeah well when when i joined the met office as a as a fresh faced youngster um back in 2003 uh, i think things were quite different then um i think the 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 job of a weather forecaster uh in in those days was really to forecast the weather and and that sounds a little bit silly but what i mean by that is that that's where our um our job description sort of ended was at the, at the forecasting and we handed that over to the customers and the users of that information for them to do with what, what they wanted to make their decisions. Um, and that has gradually changed over the years. And I think now the role of a what we call operational meteorologist is, is much more about advice and communication understanding the requirements of that broad spectrum of customers and users that we have um, and really helping them to make the best decisions with the information available and that has been quite a a shift in ways of working and mindset for people and that's really where the social science comes in Um, and, and the social sciences are a hugely broad umbrella covering an absolute myriad of different topics. But when we are forecasting the weather, what people really want to know is not what the weather will be, but what the weather will do, how it will impact them. And the the Met Office is purpose, or our mission statement, if you like, is helping people to make better decisions to stay safe and thrive. And I actually really love that mission statement because it's got people at the heart, which is is fantastic. It also has the stay safe element, which of course is, is one of our key remits um, as the National Weather Service in the UK is providing those warnings of severe and impactful weather. But it's also got that word "thrive" in there, and I really like that because that's more about the the everyday. So that's that's those decisions that that people make on a daily basis, whether to take a brolly, whether to get the big coat out of the wardrobe. You know, those. And uh, as my is my hobby, or my football match, my my tennis match going to be impacted by the weather? It's all these things which help people to thrive. Um, whether that be uh,
0: the general public or variety of, of business customers as well. I think you summed that up really nicely there as well. And I mean, when people ask me what the weather is going to be, I can tell them the ins and outs of the science, but ultimately they're like, well, do I need to take a coat today? Can yeah. I go for my hike today? They don't, that's the, that's the information that they actually want. Absolutely. Yes. And I think um, another change that I've
2: noticed is that it's, our, our job as meteorologists is not just that awareness piece that I think we've we focused on previously. Um, it goes beyond that. And really, actually, awareness is just the first stage, awareness of the forecast, awareness that there is a warning out. It's really about... Um, those decisions that people make as a result of of the information we give them. And um, particularly when it comes to severe and impactful, whether it's about um, helping people to take the right actions to make the right behaviours to to keep them safe. Um, And that's something I've been working on particularly over the last few months. And um, I'm part of a a brand new team in the Met Office called the Weather and Climate Extremes and Impacts Team, which is a really cool, cool title. Um, The Extremes Team for short. (laughs) And uh, those four keywords that are in that um, description are crucial. So we've got weather and climate in there. Now, my background um, in, in operational meteorology is predominantly from the sort of weather angle so the shorter time scales up to a couple of weeks maybe a month or so looking at trends but it's really important and increasingly so that we incorporate weather and climate together and I expect you've both noticed this as well that one of the questions that gets asked first and most frequently when there is a severe extreme impactful weather event is was that because of climate change and then maybe the next question is so will this become more frequent or more likely or how how is this going to to change um, over the next few years or decades and so it's really important that we link weather and climate together in that way and then we've got the extremes and impacts in the title as well so extremes fairly self-explanatory but extremes are becoming more extreme and more frequent and actually the team was put together largely as a result of a couple of specific events that happened um, in the UK. So one was the extreme flooding in London in 2021 as a result of the, the convective event and then the of course the um, unprecedented heat of summer 2022 when we exceeded 40 celsius for the first time and and that word unprecedented is really important because it's something we've never seen before and if if our remit is to help people make better decisions that's really difficult in unprecedented events because people have no prior experience on which to base those decisions. So again, that's where where the social and behavioral science comes in, um, is trying to put the weather into some kind of context, even when that, even when there is no context historically to put it into.
1: Yeah, do you know you you know, the thing is as well, it's it's um in the time I have worked in communication, which I think when I moved into the Met Office originally, there was definitely a shift in the type of um, intake, you know, that was coming through on my course. We had um, someone in cabin crew. There was someone with an archaeological background. There was a whole, you know, whole, whole range of people that were were coming at it from different angles. There's so many platforms to reach people now. You've got social media, you've got your traditional platforms, then you've got all the health systems that are tied, tied into all of that. Tell us a little bit more about in your job, how you manage, how you manage that message and something else you said that actually I've never heard it described in this way. We have no frame of reference for some of the events that are happening. And I never thought about it like that before. So tell us a little bit more how you, how you contextualize that in your team before you then go, right, okay, out you go teams. Here we go. It's on everywhere. It's everywhere on every level. It's, it's
2: a really, it's a big question and one that we're, we're grappling with at the moment. And when I say we're new, we were literally formed at the end of 2022. So we're really just um, sort of finding our feet and trying to understand ourselves how we can best do that. But what we do know is that we have all the skills and expertise and knowledge already in the Met Office and across the wider meteorological community. Um, and we really are going to be, um, as a team, as a transdisciplinary team, um, trying to integrate that knowledge and come up with processes, although that sounds like quite a boring word, but um, processes in a, in a positive way um, that we can use in these, it, ahead of, more importantly, these extreme weather events. So we want to have um, contextualised information available for people in the run-up to an extreme event, we want to be able to perhaps do a sort of real-time attribution where we can say ahead of an event or during an event, whether this is likely to have been exacerbated because of climate change or whether we can put any statistical analysis around that and say how much more likely these sorts of scenarios are with anthropogenic climate change. And then we're looking at the sort of post-event analysis and and wrap-up and summary and really putting people at the heart of that. So we've been very good at... um, recording these sorts of events and keeping records from a purely meteorological context. But increasingly, what we want to understand is what did it mean for people? how did it impact people how did people's behavior change or or didn't it um and these are the sorts of questions that increasingly we're going to be asking and and trying to delve into and there are a variety of ways in which which we can do that but yeah this is the fun bit is is trying to work out exactly how we're going to going to deal with all these questions that we have
1: yeah I think but I think though there's been a mega shift like a really amazing push I mean if you like your your the Twitter account for the Met Office is just incredible, like it's incredible. the amount of yeah. information that's on that. and yeah, also the storm naming um I just find that invaluable and there's different opinions on this, and we've had different podcasts of people having different opinions about this, but I think naming things is so important, and even now, actually I did a school talk just yesterday. It's two different year uh groups. They both asked me about the Beast from the East so I think it's really important actually to give these things names so we have a frame of reference which brings me onto a question i ask you do you think we should name heat waves oh that's
2: that's a good one I, I have been thinking about that um I totally agree with you that, that that naming naming storms has been hugely beneficial for for communication particularly um I think it was a, a fantastic um in, endeavor and i'm really pleased that we do that heat waves are trickier um because they're less discreet so with a storm there is a low pressure system that you can see on the synoptic chart and you can label it and you can track it and you can see it with a heat wave it's much more disparate you could potentially name the area of high pressure associated with it, um, but then that high pressure might stick around longer than the actual heatwave conditions. It's a real, it's a real challenge, and I'm not sure. I I think I'm a little bit on the fence with that one at the moment. I I could be persuaded either way.
0: <laughs> I suppose it's hard as well because the threshold for a heatwave in the UK varies depending on which yes. part of the country you're in as well. So that would make that would add an extra layer to that that sort of naming if we were to name heat waves as well you've got that to consider as well
2: yeah absolutely yeah it is a really tricky one um i mean i've already referred to the the first time we exceeded 40 celsius in the uk last summer that's quite a mouthful (laughs) that whole sentence that i just said being able to refer to it by Mm. a single name would be quite useful but and and I guess it would raise awareness, um, which is important. However, going back to that, that um, particular event, um, and I'm sure you are both more aware than, than most people of the amount of discourse and um, particularly imagery and pictures that were going alongside that event in the run-up and particularly how some of the tabloids were (laughs) representing it as something very positive, something to enjoy and at the same time uh, some of the media was sort of labelling us as meteorologists as Um, scaremongers. It was a real challenge and So I guess we 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 obviously don't want to overhype things for sure, but equally we want to make people aware of how dangerous these these things can be. And if naming would and could help with that, then, yeah, certainly open minded about it, I would say.
1: Yeah. And, you know, what, I think the thing is as well, when you, you mentioned about scaremongering and, you know, I can definitely relate to a lot of what you were saying there. But I think actually for me personally, um. I know when I first went into, uh, even even when I first started in meteorology, there was still that kind of concept of like, you can't really put any one event down to climate change, but there was no such thing as attribution studies. Mm. There was still very much a pullback from having an opinion on it. But I don't think, I think the people who are saying those things are always going to say those things. And for me, that has been something that has changed. And actually, even more so after last summer, where I was like, well, say what you want to say, I'm going to say what I want to say because I'm studying this stuff long enough and reading it long enough to know I kind of like have a, an ethos where I'm like, I pretty much just tip along, but if I make noise, I'm not making it for, you know, no reason. And I think actually, yeah. that's probably one thing that the Met Office do brilliantly is get that balance of when you should be worrying about something and when you shouldn't be worrying about something. And and you know what, whether we hit 40 degrees or not last year, it was pretty terrifying watching that on the charts. I'm watching that first ensemble run come out yeah. and thinking, what's that? (laughs) There must be something wrong there. Why is it doing that? And I think there was some like idea initially about maybe drier soil or something like that feeding back into the models. But I think that's just something that starts to happen when your industry and what you represent gets pushed into the forefront and into the media. You just end up being faced with that type of things. And I think well for me personally it's sort of like a take it on the chin now I'm like well that's your opinion and that's fine
2: yeah and that's a great way to, to to deal with it and I think we have to be careful not to um give too much attention and credence to that vocal minority of people um because they are thankfully a minority um but they do have a loud voice and we have to be careful not to just because they're shouting loudest um doesn't mean they deserve the most attention
1: yeah it can be really you know it's like if you get you know some sort of feedback email in it's always the one bad one that you remember yes. not the yeah. not the hundred people who didn't say anything it'll be the one the one bad one but yeah I think I definitely feel like for me that experience of last year just did actually make my skin a bit thicker it was like you know what no I really know what I'm talking about here yeah and I really believe in what I'm talking about so
2: it's our job to talk about the science and have evidence to back up what we say and and we can we can happily do that
0: One thing I'd quite like to ask you is, do we see people behaving in certain ways when we give warnings or there is certain weather forecast? Is there like trends to how, like if we say to people, please don't travel because there's a windstorm, do we notice that people actually listen to that and don't travel during the times that we've said?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, we have a lot of uh, research um, and evidence around this. And it's absolutely fascinating. So, for example, after every amber and red warning that we issue at the Met Office, we conduct uh, public surveys, um, public perception surveys, they're called. And that uh, those data that we get from these surveys are, are just so incredibly useful. And we always feed that back through the whole Forecast process from the science through to the services, through to the communication, um, and make sure that we're improving our, our services all the time. And it and we have quite detailed information about the types of people who are more or less likely to respond to warnings um, and in what ways uh, they they might take action or change their behaviours. And it really, really is fascinating. This brings me on to one of my pet topics at the moment, having done the psychology degree, um, is all about cognitive biases. And there are, I actually came across uh, this list of 106 cognitive biases, and I'm pretty sure that's not every single one. I'm sure that list isn't exhaustive, but it's enough to get starting with. And I just had a look through this list and pulled out some that I think are are particularly relevant to to us in in the context of communicating weather information. Um, And and I can pull out a few for you. So there's one called um, the availability heuristic. So this is where people favour recent and available information over past information, and the, the way in which I think this is relevant for us is, for example, people who've been recently flooded are more likely to take heed of a, a, a flood warning, and I think there's even some more specific research around that to suggest that the it's off the order of about a decade, so if you've experienced a flood of your home in the last decade, you're much more likely to take notice and react to a flood warning. Um, there's, there's this uh, social proof um, bias where we are pack animals almost and we really do take an awful lot of notice of what other people are doing around us. So if, for example, there's an evacuation order, people people's decision will be strongly impacted by what they see people, their friends, neighbours, family doing around them. So it only takes a, a few people not to follow that evacuation order for uh, a, a big majority of people not to follow it as well there's there's one called banner blindness which is where people tune out to information that's um, persistent or that they're repeatedly exposed to. So this is really important for us and that's the danger of overwarning. Um, And particularly, uh, so in the Met Office for the National Severe Weather Warning Service, we have a traffic light system. So there's yellow, amber, red. Yellow with the lowest level of, of warning um, and therefore we issue by far the most yellows. Um, m- many, many fewer ambers and very, very few reds there. They're very rare. Um, that works quite well, but I wonder if people are exposed to too many yellow warnings and therefore don't really take much notice of them. Um, it's something we're trying to to get data on, but I just don't think we know the answer to
1: that question yet. Do you know? And that do you know, that probably answer is probably a moving beast. You know, depending on maybe the type of year that it's been in the weather or yes. And then for each, you know, our, our we have this like kind of twenty four hour hour memory hour also. So like, I do remember completely that it was absolutely boiling last summer. But I can't quite remember what that felt like, but closer yes. to that time, I could. And I may have, you know, it's actually a fascinating topic, isn't it? And one, it's that- really
2: interesting. And yeah. actually, what
1: what you just said
2: there, um, reminds me of a conversation I had just earlier on today about. The, the heat wave that followed the 40 degrees, which was much more prolonged, um, although uh, less hot in the extreme, but it, it, I wonder if people's behavior was slightly different because we'd recently experienced that unprecedented weather situation. Um, and we also have some interesting statistics around, people's vulnerabilities and even the sorts of people who, who come into tru- trouble and unfortunately die in these, these situations. And there's a big problem um, of people, young people, particularly young males, dying uh, in water-related incidents during heat waves. So obviously there's the, the health impacts and they would tend to... Um, affect people with health conditions and the young and the old but it's easy to forget about this population we don't think of as particularly vulnerable is sort of fit young healthy males who are out to have a a bit of fun and and um having a good time with their mates and and end up in horrible difficulties in the water
1: yeah and you know actually I think that was one of the main messaging that you know was last year was like this is going to affect everybody you're going to struggle through this, yeah. Do you know, and but also... it's
2: difficult. It's it's a really difficult one to communicate um, because of the fact that it is less. It, again, it's less tangible. A heat event, in the sense that with a windstorm, you you can sort of picture what you might expect to see with the debris and the branches and um, high-sided vehicles being blown over and those sorts of things. With a heat event, it's less obvious, um, particularly
1: visually, of, of what you might expect. The circumstances in which we all live—whether you have a big house, a small house, an old house, a flat—how much heat heat is building in that—and also brings to mind how complex it must be to be the chief forecaster, who's like, right, well, I've got all the weather to sort out, and then we need to sort out all the warnings <laughs> as well. Yeah, because our our warnings are impact based, and
2: so um, our warnings aren't issued based on meteorological thresholds. That they the the chief meteorologists who issue the warnings are having to take so many other factors into consideration, and this again is all about social science. It's decision science. It's understanding um, how we can help our meteorologists to make the best decisions given the information available. And it's so complex. It it really is. And, you know, with a heat warning, they're having to factor in those health impacts. So we're we're actually expecting, you know, medical expertise as well as being exceptional
0: meteorologists. I'd quite like to ask you about your dissertation that you did for your master's. You looked at sort of PTSD following natural disasters, didn't you? Can you talk a little bit about that? I did.
2: Yeah, sure. It was, it was actually a really fascinating topic. And I'm really glad I, I chose it in the end. Um, So as, as you can imagine, a, a natural disaster can be an absolutely catastrophic event for for people. And depending on how they were impacted um, can have really, really severe mental health consequences for people. PTSD is relatively common. Um, but I was looking at, at various factors that may um, influence uh, a, an individual's likelihood to develop PTSD following a natural disaster. And there are, there are various demographics that are at higher risk. For example, um, the elderly females, ethnic minorities, and people with a history of or existing mental ill health. So these are some of the particularly vulnerable groups of people that we should pay particularly close attention to um, during and after a natural disaster. Um, I also looked at at some of the factors like media consumption. This was really interesting um, because media uh, consumption can have both a positive or negative impact, depending on the type of media that people are exposed to, which probably isn't a huge surprise. Um, So for example, if people are exposed to images of uh, people dying, um, then fairly intuitively, that is likely to have a much more negative effect on people's mental health following following a disaster. Um, But actually, conversely, viewing uh, sort of heroic acts, um, and interestingly, viewing sort of raw footage of the event, if you like, sort of unfiltered, no particular framing, just footage of the event can also actually be quite a positive influence for people's Mental health following a disaster. And one of the most interesting findings emerging from the literature is that people are more likely to develop PTSD following a disaster if they perceive it as human made compared with being completely natural. And of course, this has implications for anthropogenic climate change, which, as well as resulting in more frequent and more extreme weather disasters, may exacerbate PTSD due to the fact that we can increasingly attribute these events to humans. And then I also looked at sort of the best uh, ways to to treat um, PTSD after a natural disaster. There's some really interesting literature around that. and it does seem like cognitive behavioral therapy is is generally the best course of action. But there are some interesting um, additional treatments that that can be really beneficial as well. Um, for example, mindfulness or exercise. these sorts of things are relatively, um, cheap and easy if not free um, for people so that that was interesting as well
1: just to pick up on something you said there why is it that raw footage is a positive like, yeah behind I, that? Really well I yeah it is very interesting um uh
2: I, I I don't actually know why that that seems to have a positive effect but I guess as long as it's not framed in a negative way perhaps just seeing I, I don't know because you could also assume the opposite that sort of really seeing it and reliving it could could have a negative impact so i don't actually know
1: the psychology Maybe it's behind something that. to do with the fact that if that footage exists that person may have survived
2: yeah interesting
1: yeah you know well that if be. you're watching footage and you don't you don't feel uncomfortable because you understand that that footage is there because that person is okay yeah in that's a really thing. really interesting thought yeah absolutely so it is time, though, to move on to our Get to Know Me round with Helen Roberts. Gemma, do you want to take
0: it away? Yep, yeah, let's go. So we have some weather-related questions and some non-weather-related questions. Okay. So what's your favourite season? My favourite season is autumn. Um, but
2: if I can be slightly tricksy about it, I more specifically it's late autumn into early winter it's that November December period I I, I'm a huge Christmas fan um so yeah it's that whole run-up between bonfire night and the run-up to Christmas is just brilliant um and it's my favorite time to get outside enjoy the the crisp you know uh, there's nothing better than a frosty morning and a blue sky cold day
1: yeah can't argue with that. The way you explained it, <laughs> I mean, we all know spring is the best season, but
0: that's a pretty good. I kind of find that one hard, difficult to argue with. Uh, no, autumn is the best. But anyway, we move on. <laughs> we move on. <laughs> do you have a favourite cloud?
2: I do, and I'm afraid I'm going to be quite predictable here. It's got to be the nimbus. and if it's sort of isolated with a big anvil top, all the better. Yeah, they're just brilliant. They are pretty to be expensive. able
0: to sit there and just watch them pass as well yeah. in the distance yeah. that's awesome yeah. I, I yeah. think
1: I think I partly find them beautiful because obviously you can tell a lot what's happening whether you know how hairy the top of them are yeah but also it's like wow I can visually see the top of yeah where or I the live yeah or at least the, the troposphere. Yeah. yeah yeah the bit yeah. that I'm probably
0: most likely to survive in <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think it's pretty fascinating yeah awesome if you could have a superpower what would it be Oh or it would have to be flying
2: because to be up in the weather up in the clouds too you know that that would be amazing and to have that different perspective of the earth as well to look look mm. back down on the earth and also because from a from a practical and logistical angle I I love being in different places but I do hate traveling so if I could make traveling a bit more fun then that would be great
1: do you know what I'm the same but I've never quite put those two things together I love I love different places but I hate traveling (laughs) it's brilliant you know I do love though when I am on an airplane popping up through a cloud layer seeing how thick it is whether there's a little bulbous cumulus somewhere in the distance you know I, I do actually love getting you know but I, I would like to live in a taffy ground, basically, is what <laughs> I would like to do.
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> would you prefer jammy dodgers or jaffa cakes? Both are great. I'd have to go with the jammy dodger
2: because I love dunking a biscuit in a cup of tea. So oh God, I, yeah. I don't think you can really do that with a jaffa cake. So, so yeah, how, jammy do dodger. Eat,
1: how do you eat it, though? Do you like That's just a favourite question.
2: <laughs> the, like... the, the jaffa cake or the dodger?
1: Well, both of them.
2: I I would be a sort of nibble around the side for a Jaffa cake, for sure. But I think if I'm dunking, it's less easy to do that. So I think that would be sort of
1: yeah. just a big bite. I do a little bit of both, actually, with the uh, jammy Dodger. I kind of do a bit of dunking, but then I will ultimately nibble around the side and get to the best last, which for me is the middle bit.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> if you didn't forecast the weather for the UK, which other country do you think you'd want to forecast the weather for? I. Had a uh, this actually ties back to our, our previous
2: conversation about um, flying as well. So I had a incredible, slightly scary experience just before the pandemic. I was fortunate enough to get a, an epic holiday in, um, which included flying into Johannesburg in South Africa in a very small plane, and there were massive cumulonimbus is around. Um, thunder and lightning, and we flew. I mean, presumably not through them because I wouldn't be here to tell the tale. But very, very close. The turbulence was incredible. Um, but the thunderstorms when we landed, all around, were spectacular. So, yeah, that that comes to mind as a great place to forecast for.
1: What a memory, though. Mm. Holy, holy. <laughs> yeah.
2: I have to admit, I'm not normally a particularly nervous flyer, um, and I I actually weirdly quite enjoy a bit of turbulence but this was my palms were sweaty The poor lady behind me was terrified and I felt this sort of cold clammy hand on my shoulder at one point (laughs) I just had to turn around and smile there's not much I could I could do for reassurance at that point
1: (laughs) oh that's so sweet that's actually so sweet although do you know what I have had a pilot tell me many pilots tell me they like a bit of turbulence because it's interesting for them yeah I, I can switched quite on. Well
2: imagine yeah. 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 I don't mind it at all.
1: I might say that though after
0: I'd landed and then was watching yes. the thunderstorms from the surface. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We've got three more questions. So, if you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? I would be a bunch of grapes, because
2: Ooh. it's sort of um it's lot of lots of little things that make up one big thing, and you could argue that that one big thing is better than the sum of its parts and that kind of fits with particularly my work life but perhaps my my social life as well but yeah there's all, I'm always I'm always dabbling in lots of little things and and trying to pull them together into something that's sort of more useful than they are on their own
1: I love that.
0: Also, great,
2: grapes have multiple uses, don't they? Because oh, I mean, you can turn good. them into wine
0: for a start. So <laughs> I was thinking that <laughs> when you said that, I was like, oh. <laughs> and no one's ever said grapes either. That is oh, a good, ah, brilliant good answer. If you could invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any historical time frame or even a fictional character. Who would you invite? I would really love to invite someone
2: from sort of meteorological history so so for example I mean Fitzroy comes to mind who who was effectively the founder of the Met Office and and the inventor of forecasting um, but also someone like Luke Howard who was the namer of clouds that was 250 years ago and we still use his his terminology his classifications today and and also Lewis Fry Richardson who sort of invented numerical weather prediction before computers even existed which yeah. blows my mind yep. and imagine if if we could imagine having dinner with them and showing them what the world is like now and and everything that we can do with with weather forecasting and how beneficial it is to people's lives and to the economy I think they, they would be so amazed to see how
1: far we've come. He would and you know what you mentioned interesting thing Luke, I would love to meet Luke. I love Luke. I'm obsessed with them and their name and I think, wow, imagine you know he he is that fundamental for me. it's like you know science is begins by all observation
2: yes i I um was lucky enough to be invited to a an event in Tottenham where he he spent a lot of his life um for the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary, which was. Uh, end of end of 2022 um and I gave a talk and there were various events going on and one of the parks near his house was um unveiled as a cloud the first ever cloud appreciation park it was brilliant and oh. his I think it was his great grandson was there as well or oh, one of his ancestors anyway it was really That's good
1: amazing oh my goodness how amazing Philheim Björknees as well the inventor, yes, of front. yes, yep. Yeah. He just popped into my head. I actually saw his surname on an airplane a couple of years ago, and I was like, "Oh, awesome. look, it's burkneys It was a Norwegian airline, and I was like, "It yeah. must be, it must be him." Nobody cared who was with me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we will have to get all these people together, and then me and you, Ash, we'll just gatecrash the we'll the dinner, yeah, yeah. and try
1: and not scare them with the way the world has changed.
0: <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. And finally, what's one thing that you wish everybody knew about the weather? I really, I really wish people
2: appreciated the difference between rain and showers. (laughs) That is a brilliant
1: answer already.
2: Um, And also how difficult showers are to forecast. At least, you know, in terms of specific times and locations. I really like the analogy of the pot of boiling water that, you know, there are going to be bubbles forming in the pan. But you don't know exactly when and where those bubbles are going to be.
1: Yeah, it's true. I I like to use the popcorn one. Yeah, the popcorn. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, no, this is so true. And I do wish everyone did know the difference between rain and showers because people will say to you, you got the forecast wrong." Yes. no you interpreted it wrong
0: <laughs> yeah that is a great answer which is I what wish people do that as well job.
1: <laughs> it does yeah um Helen we would love to leave everybody with a little weather wisdom would you like to give us one absolutely
2: so my weather wisdom is that depending on how you measure there are at least nine different types of lightning and I've I've actually got a book next to me, so I'll I'm just going to open and see if I can uh, sort of show you a bit of a core cool image here of some of the, the different types through the, through, yeah excellent so um, <laughs> brilliant yeah it's a good book so for example. Um, the fairly standard types of lightning are, of course, cloud to ground, but you can also have cloud to cloud, which is intercloud lightning, or within the same cloud, which is intracloud lightning. So they're sort of three types that that most people will have seen at some point. Um, but there's there's all sorts of different types. There's one called pearl necklace lightning, which sort of, as the name suggests, looks like a pearl necklace or sort of. A chain or beads um it sort of splits into lots of very tiny sections rather than being one continuous streak there's ribbon lightning there's forks there's sheet which is often in intra-cloud lightning where you don't actually see the the lightning bolt itself but the sky just appears to sort of light up and that's that's often because it's within a cloud or at least the the light is being um uh, can't reach your eyes because there's a cloud in the way, but then there's these really interesting ones that you might not have heard of. Um, there's sprites and there's blue jets and there's elves, which are just very cool names in themselves. Um, and these tend to be much higher up in the atmosphere and in in fact into the stratosphere mesosphere or even the thermosphere so really really high up for elves for example can be um up to 100 kilometers above the ground um but and then there's ball lightning as well which is fascinating so this is very very rare where but people have have reported seeing basically a glowing ball just moving in front of them and it can it can come down to the surface it can be on the ground um, there was a report from I think it was 2011 of a of a lady who um, was on her farm and just saw this glowing ball of light move moving across in front of her eyes. So, yeah, very incredibly rare. Um, someone will. I'm, I'm sure maybe someone's caught it on camera before, but um, I, I'm sure there'll be a, a good bit of video footage of that one day.
1: Do you know what? I think I actually only very recently so there's actually at least two of those I didn't know I very recently saw something on ball lightning but it would explain a lot about UFOs it would wouldn't it
2: yeah yeah, yeah absolutely or some of those other types of lightning yeah they could definitely definitely explain some of those unusual sightings for sure Brilliant. I just realised
0: as well that we mentioned a book but people who are listening won't know what book we're oh, talking yeah. about was, so what yeah. book were you looking at <laughs> so
2: the book I was using, is called Very British Weather, um, and it's a Met Office book, and it's, as well as being a fantastic book, it's a, a really beautiful cover as well, so yeah,
1: I'd recommend that one. Lovely, I can never have enough weather books, and actually, if I'm honest, I don't really look at them as much, <laughs> but I just love having them. Just have you know? to have them, yeah. I just have to have them, I just love them.
0: <laughs> I went into the shop the other day, and I was just literally in the weather, weather section, I thought, well, I don't really need more weather books. I came out uh, with three. One really <laughs> just on clouds. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. Oh, I'm gonna...
1: So I'm a bit obsessed with the new international cloud atlas. Oh. I haven't seen a print version of it. No, I it's haven't It's still seen. just online. I'm like, oh, is it? God, that would be my book, you know, my book. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. No, they have. I mean, probably environmental reasons perhaps, but I'm like, oh, it would be so beautiful to have that book. It would. All the updated clouds. Anyway we digress we digress Helen thank you so much for joining us this evening it has just been an absolute delight and maybe you might join us again maybe in a, a couple of months time or maybe in a year's time and see how everything is going with I'd the new role that you've taken be, on
2: yeah, I'd be delighted and thank you so much for the invitation it's been it's been a blast
1: oh, it's definitely definitely been our pleasure and if Helen if anybody would like to follow you on twitter or whatever social media channels what you normally go by.
2: Yep, so on Twitter, I am at weather underscore Helen. And on LinkedIn, I'm
0: Helen Roberts. Amazing. And if people want to follow us on Instagram, we are for the love of weather. On Twitter, we are the number four love of weather. And if you could rate the podcast, give us a review, share the podcast uh, with anyone that you think might want to have a little listen. It really helps people find our podcast. And so we can share the love of weather to everyone that's out there. So, yeah, we'd love it if you could do that.
1: And as always, we just hope that you leave this episode, Love and the Weather, that little bit more. Thanks for listening.